The following discussion was held during a retreat at the Berry Center for Buddhist Studies. This retreat, Human Flourishing and the Evolution of Buddhism in the West, was led by Barry Majid and Max Erdstein in October 2021. Their answer to what uh, was missing. And uh, on the contrary, it often seemed like it was just the opposite. They had spent too much time in the monastery and didn't have any experience in dealing with uh, human relations and human psychology. Uh, so I think that's the background of why I thought that kind of integration uh, was so important. And it seemed that uh, it could just as easily or more easily take place in a uh, lay context uh, where psychological issues could be more easily uh, brought out and discussed. And, and would you say that uh, you've developed somewhat of a of a of a niche as taking in refugees from um other forms of of, of buddhist practice who who may have been not served so well well i mean for teachers. a while i was i used to joke that i had developed a psychoanalytic specialty in the treatment of neurotic buddhists you know uh that people would come to me you know when you know, important issues were bypassed in, in their uh, practice. Uh, Joko's uh, center in San Diego was really the refugee center. I mean, that was the place where everybody was showing up from all over the, the country um, after uh, things were imploding in one center after another. Um, and it... Uh, it meant all those issues were in the foreground, but it also, uh, in retrospect, meant that um, the place was filled with very uh, experienced practitioners who had done a lot of training in a lot of different places. And um, in a way, there weren't so many beginners there. You know, the place started with lots of people coming down from L.A., you know, who had you know, worked with Maizumi for years. And there are lots of people coming from all over the place who had a lot of experience, but were looking for uh, Zen to uh, take a different direction for them. Uh, so in a way, she didn't have to uh, spend a lot of time teaching the basics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It, it created a, a particular atmosphere, I think, that. Well, well, now here we are, you know, some 30 plus years later, when you look at the, the Western Dharma scene, do you find that uh, psychological understanding is, is more integrated than it was then, you know, among non-expert, you know, psychologist but just something that's kind of infused into how how the dharma is 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 taught and practiced well certainly uh in those lay zen teachers uh organization a very large percentage of those people have some background in some flavor of therapy um so i think that um 
a certain kind of psychological awareness is um, almost taken for granted in, in, in many more Zen circles. And I don't think you would hear teachers dismissing, you know, emotional problems as the merely psychological anymore. Uh, I think they more and more realize that uh, there's no clear demarcation between the psychological and the spiritual or the reasons that bring people into meditation practice versus the reasons that bring them into uh, to therapy. That there's this whole spectrum of suffering, if you will, that goes from uh, things that could be described, you know, clinically as symptoms like anxiety or depression to things that seem more like a search uh, for meaning or a um, desire for community, but that uh, the psychological and the spiritual practices really completely interpenetrate, and there's no uh, good way to try to, uh, to separate them out, that the teachers have to be aware that uh, everybody's there for this whole variety of reasons. Well, it, it certainly seems like a Dharma teacher, a Western Dharma teacher today who has zero understanding of things like trauma, you know, it's kind of like, you know, malpractice or something, you know, they kind of be able to be able to understand, you know, certain things that will come up um, in the course of a retreat. Um, but I guess a question about places where Western psychological framework and the Buddhist psychology um, may conflict. And I mean, one of the things I'm thinking of is just the, you know, Seagal's book. And it feels like um, one of his big critiques of uh, the kind of, you know, traditional Buddhism is that he's skeptical. He's skeptical of some of the radical claims of, you know, what, 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 what's possible for a human being. And, you know, and, and when I was reading him, I thought about Freud and this, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's valid, but this critique of Freud and that, you know, um, that Freud dismissed mystical intuition as infantile mm -hmm. and, you know, and, this, and, and, and wondering, is there some, you know, is there a place where there's a lot of benefit to bringing in Western psychological insight but does where where is that framework limited in some way? You know, of like, you know, where where does it conflict with with Buddhist psychology? And you know, the wonder if you have thoughts about that. Well, I think that uh, Freud aside, uh, Western psychology is. Uh, more and more willing to look at um, what have been called mystical experiences, or uh, maybe now even more uh, uh, via a psychedelic revolution. You know, uh, you know, Michael Pollan may be more the authority than, than Freud these days for a lot of people. Uh, but I think that the um, 
the other side of that is the um, the reality that these experiences are almost never um, once and for all transformative uh, kinds of events. And I guess it was Jack Cornfield who's, whose book was called After Ecstasy, The Laundry, right? Mm -hmm. So that uh, the, the recognition that uh, these uh, experiences while real were not uh, all they were cracked up to be. Um, I think in my first book, Ordinary Mind, I was writing about sort of the top down versus the bottom up uh, way of thinking about these experiences. And when I started out, uh, the sort of the, the governing, governing mythology was that these experiences would cause a kind of top down transformation of character that uh, is sort of trickle down mysticism. You know, if you had uh, a big enough one of these um, experiences, it was a kind of universal solvent for uh, character pathology, right? It would seep down into every nook and cranny of your personality and dissolve all the neurosis away and wash it away. And if there was any left, the answer would just have another experience, you know, and that, that would clean it up, right? And I think that more and more we found that um, not only was that not true, but that for a lot of people, uh, these experiences not only didn't uh, heal dissociation, they fostered it. They, uh, that what it meant was it created a whole sector of a personality where a person felt whole or at one or certain of themselves, but it just caused them to split off all the things that were problematic. Basically, so you say, well, I got this great experience without dealing with any of that stuff. So I'm, I'm just going to put that aside and sort of say, that's not the real thing. I'm going to try to totally identify with this enlightened part. Uh, so those experiences are, are certainly very real, uh, but they're psychologically complicated and whether or not they get integrated uh, with the rest of the personality or behavior. And it's why Joko essentially devised a kind of bottom-up practice, working much more at the day-to-day -day micro level of resistance to the moment and seeing the absolute as non-separation with what's ever happening, including all your anger, resistance, and anxiety, so that... Uh, we didn't uh, valorize the absolute as something that was revealed in one big flash of insight, but what was present all the time, uh, being one with this moment, regardless of it, of its content. Um, just to return to the um, issue of uh, bypassing and monasticism, uh, I, I highly recommend a book by uh, 
uh, a young uh, teacher, uh, Geshen Greenwood, yeah. uh, was called um, Bow First, Ask Questions Later. And it uh, gives a very good account of uh, her experience as a young Western woman going to train in Japanese monasteries. And uh, I think her first experience was in a monastery run by a male, male teacher where she was there was a woman among other, you know, male monks. And, uh, you know, there's this line where she asks her teacher, what's the most important part of Zen training? And he says, uh, learning to put aside all feeling. <laughs> uh, after a year, it turns out uh, she had to leave that monastery because the teacher fell in love with her. He was the, he was the only, she's the only young woman he had been exposed to in years. And uh, putting aside his feelings wasn't working so well. And so they transferred her to basically a nunnery, right? <laughs> and there... Uh, the practice was again uh, uh, almost uh, intentionally a, uh, a a practice of just do it and let that override or wear out any feeling or resistance you have. Uh, so practice was very much about work and daily routine and ritual, and uh, this was intended to wear out. Uh, any kind of uh, so-called self-centered uh, resistance, you know? And she has some conclusion at the end where she says, in many ways, this was an enormously valuable character-building experience. In a lot of ways, the way Siegel talks uh, about uh, a eudaimonic practice, it built up all sorts of... Uh, discipline and endurance and, uh, uh, you know, different kinds of characterological virtues. She says, uh, the only thing it wasn't good for was learning anything about either love or anger. Uh, <laughs> these are small details, right? And uh, I, I think uh, when you read that account, you can see that in the minds of you know the the Japanese system, dissociation wasn't a bug; it was a feature. You know, they were teaching you how to do it. <laughs> uh, so she came back here, and now she's trying to train to be a therapist to right. uh, uh, to deal with some of that stuff that was left over. But it's a very uh, it's a very good, very funny, and honest account of what it's uh, uh, of how that traditional system can uh, completely disen be disengaged from a person's emotional reality, uh, and even be designed to override it. Well, it brings up a question for me: of do. Um it seems like quite a common pattern to, especially maybe earlier in one's practice to seek out, um, you know, there's a kind of idealization, you know, it's like going to Asia to the monastery or going to work mm -hmm. with the strictest teacher or the strictest form or putting oneself 
through something. Um, how important is that, is that quest, is that journey? You know, is there something that we need to kind of convince ourselves that if we, after we project whatever it is onto some system or some teacher, do most people need to go through some version of that? Well, I think it's valuable for a lot of people for different reasons. I think um, in some ways it's excellent uh, character building training for feckless youth. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it, it teaches uh, discipline and endurance and how to live in a community and how to deal with authority. Uh, it allows people to um, realize they can uh, uh, handle much more than they ever thought they could, that they can build up all kinds of strengths that they didn't think possible. Uh, for better or for worse, it can toughen people up so that they uh, are able to live uh, uh, simpler but rougher lives without so much dependence on creature comforts and distractions. I mean, these are all good character building uh, qualities as long as they don't get diverted into uh, just macho toughness, which was a... Uh, a real pitfall of, of some of these uh, practice centers. Um, I think that um, when you read the autobiography of somebody like Hakuin, uh, who grew up a very neurotic kid filled with uh, fears of going to hell and all sorts of anxieties, uh, he was tortured by... Um, all sorts of uh, self-doubt and, fe and, uh, uh, and fears. And it's as if he almost had to put himself through the very thing he feared in order to get over it. You know, that you need to go put yourself through something as uh, punishing as what you're doing to yourself inside uh, in order to work it through. So I think... Um, Uh, people work through all sorts of different kinds of transference configurations with uh, dealing with distant but idealized teacher figures who they finally are able to uh, win over and make the connection they never uh, were able to have with their own father. You sort of get that kind of scenario all the time. Um, I, th I think that that Training is uh, valuable, intense. It has big upsides and big downsides. And, uh, you know, some places are saner than others. Uh, as, as where to go for that. I mean, that uh, maybe you can uh, uh, speak about that yourself since you have uh, experience at the monastery in uh, San Francisco. Uh, what was the uh, benefit of that? What was the downside? Why did you uh, move on from there? Well, I, um, I mean, what you say resonates. And I, I think I first went to Tassajara, which is the, some of you may know, the, the mountain center monastery for the San Francisco Zen Center. 
when I was 21 or something, 22 maybe, and uh, not full time. Then I then I then I went there sort of you know for about a year when I was 26. Um, but I I think there was a way that for for me at that age and for for a lot of a, a lot of my peers is was that it was kind of like. It, it, there was a way that you learn how to grow up in a certain way, even mm. though you're, you're in a place where, you know, someone's cooking the food. I mean, you're all, everyone's working and doing everything together. It's kind of like a commune in a way, but you're responsible to other people and there's, and you're, you're very seen, you know, that's what you're, so you're kind of, good qualities, but also the places, oh, I forgot to do that. Okay, well, we're not having uh, rice tonight because I forgot to, you know, whatever, turn on the rice. And um, I think there was a, um, I, lo I love the community. I love the fact that it was, there was just Dharma, you know, it just felt so infused with Dharma. Everyone was, you know, on this path together. And, but, but when I look back on it, there, there was a way that I, sort of grew up or kind of certain kind of maturity that mm. you get from, you know, just being responsible and, and, and accountable. And, you know, at Tassahara, the wake up bell was at three 30 and it wasn't like on our three 30 in the morning. And it wasn't like on our Vipassana retreats where, you know, kind of people, whoever shows up, shows up in the meditation hall. If you're not there by three 50, you know, there's a, they come and get you. <laughs> and then there would be a, a trail of stragglers, you know, coming in late. And, you know, so a lot of handholding in a way. Um, and I think it's, it's, if, if someone wants to do a lot of meditation, a lot of zazen, it's the easiest place to do it because it's all set up for you. The whole form is there. You just follow the bells. You just go from one thing to another. Um, so if you're passionate about that, it's wonderful. Um, I, I started to feel that um, there was a way, you know, like any system, it had its limitations. And it didn't seem so great to me, the people who, st who stayed there for five or 10 or more years, you know, sort of as students, they, they, they did climb the ladder a bit in responsibility in the hierarchy. But there was a it's also possible to hide out at a place like that and mm. get very, very comfortable and you know how to do the forms and you've sort of mastered this one certain level, but it, it's, it, you know, it, it means that you don't have to, you don't have to face other things because you're sort mm. of, people think, okay, they're, they're, they're taken care of. They know how to bow. They know how to run the place. And, um, I sort of started to see that the, the, the challenge for me was being out in the world and, and bringing that, you know, what I learned, um, you know, out into all these other dimensions of life, like relationships and, and work and, and things like that. So how is, um, how has that played out in the uh, other places you, you went to, you were, in practice at Berkeley, which was non-residential, and then Spirit Rock, and then you started coming out and seeing me once in a while. I mean, how how's all that played into 
your idea of practice in uh, daily life? How have those things been distinctive? Well, you know, Berkeley Zen Center uh, was started as a, you know, kind of like community, community temple sort of thing. So for many, many years, there were no priests. Even. Just Mel was the priest and there were no mm-hmm. other, there were no other priests there, mostly because he couldn't ordain, he couldn't ordain people because he hadn't had Dharma transmission. But it's, so it's, it's, and now there's lots of priests and, and, um, but they're, you know, they're lay priests, they're, you know, Zen priests. And, and so Berkeley Zen Center had, it, it was kind of like a very helpful transitional place from Tassajara because you have the similar forms, the same forms, but a very strong community of people who would come in at five in the morning, 540 is the first sitting. And for years, I would drive over from San Francisco, um, which seems a little crazy to me now, but, um, <laughs> you know, there's no traffic at whatever five in the morning, but it's still a 20, 25 minute drive over the bridge and you go, you know, and, um, but it, it, it really felt like this hybrid of trying to keep a quasi monastic style of practice for lay people being in the world, because, you know, not, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think a lot of kind of regular people wake up at four or five in the morning and go, it's kind of a monastic thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, at a certain point in my practice, you know, I, I started practice in the Vipassana tradition, you know, Gil Fransdahl was at Stanford where I was and, and had a group and, um, and, and, and he's the, because he had a, has a Zen side, he's the one who sent me to Tassajara. And so, um, there was a way that I felt that the traditional Soto Zen practice, um, yeah, it, it felt like even for, for, for me or for especially for me, there was, it was a way that I could h- kind of hide out and like, mm-hmm. you know, it's like just sitting, people leave you alone, you know, kind of, you know how to do it. Um, and there was a way that I felt practice was plateauing. I don't know if that was true or not, but it was kind of, you know, kind of felt like it was plateauing. And, um, and that was part of my interest in seeking you out because I thought there was a way that you uh, articulated what we're actually doing in Zazen or what, you know, one possibility of what we're doing, this kind of bottom up approach Mm -hmm. that felt very harmonious to me, to what I had learned in my Vipassana training, Mm -hmm. you know, this, this, that, that um, it wasn't just about don't move and nothing else matters and don't even think about med- you know med- you know meditation in in that kind of sense but 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 to really um yeah to to be able to to include everything in awareness you know mm-hmm. so emotions um you know certainly is a, you know a big part of it and um so, so that, so that sort of sent me on a little bit of a journey, you know, in those directions, you know, kind of, uh, your style of Zen felt very harmonious for, with the insight meditation practice that, uh, I had started with. And, 
you know, there's also a, a thing about temperament. I, I happen to love um, doing a lot of meditation and these Vipassana retreats, you can, you can just sit as long as you want and you kind of find your own rhythm. And there was a way that I, yeah, it kind of felt indulgent to me because in Zen, you know, when the bell rings, everybody gets up. Everybody mm -hmm. does the same thing in the same way. And there's certainly value to that. Um, but um, yeah, yeah, I, I think. And, and then the other way that I, that I think I, I think about them is a little bit like that Vipassana is kind of a developmental model, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and there's a lot of value to that, you know, and I, you know, I have children and, you know, just to know a little bit about how, how a person develops in the stages that they go through mm -hmm. is very helpful. You know, you say, okay, this is, this is what's going on now. And we don't have teenagers yet. And, but I've, I've heard it's, you know, um, uh, and I, I was a teenager, of course. Um, but what I appreciate about the Zen side is that in any point on the way, any point on that developmental journey, um, we can see from the perspective of completion or perfection. You know, I look mm -hmm. at my nine-year-old daughter and she's perfectly who she is at nine. Mm -hmm. You know, she's not a deficient version of a, yeah, you're good, but just get 20 more years and, you yeah, know, yeah. a couple of degrees and then you'll be enough. You know, she's perfectly a nine-year-old with, mm -hmm. with all the virtues and problems and, you know, of being that stage. Mm -hmm. And, and so, so for me, holding both of those is valuable. Like, um, you know, more and more, I feel that my life is something that's happening now and is, you know, I'm not, I'm not kind of waiting for, okay, it's only when this and this happens, then, mm -hmm. then I'll be happy. Then I'll be enough. No, it's, you know, this, it's complete right now. Um, but yeah, to have, but to have a sense of, of of an arc of cultivation of development i think can also be helpful i mean i wonder what you think of that you know those two sides yeah I, I agree with that i think that's uh that's well said uh and i think that uh, for a lot of reasons i tend to have a sangha that uh is much older and much more involved in their different stage of life than you know the people you the way you were and uh, when you went off to Tassajara uh, so I'm not training a lot of 21 year olds uh, but that kind of practice uh, makes makes sense for them uh, but isn't something that I'm in a position to offer um, so I often say I'm happy to be you know somebody's second or third teacher uh, let them do all that kind of stuff and I'll then show up, uh, you know, 20 years later to, to, to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I wanted to ask about, um, you know, we talked about the virtues and moderation and, uh, you know, with the, with the eudaimonic um, stream of things from Aristotle I did also think about the middle way, 
as being maybe the the Buddha's version of moderation, you know, in in his time of meant to be between what is it between asceticism and indulgence. Um, but it did occur to me that moderation is something that's kind of relative. You know, I think even what we're doing this weekend, some people who don't have any, you know, orientation to practice or interest, we think that's, you know, that's so extreme. They're sitting in silence for 20 minutes and it's crazy, you know, and uh, who would do that? Um, so how do we, so how do we, how do we gauge moderation? Is it relative? Or what's the standard for, you know, one person's moderation is another person's extremism. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's, uh, it is something that I think has to be relative to the students you're teaching and what they can uh, ac actually benefit from. Uh, I don't want to do a session where the bell rings at 3.30 in the morning. And, uh, you know, it's, that's not uh, very beneficial to me at this stage of my life. Uh, uh, but when you have a bunch of, uh, you know, testosterone-fueled young men, yeah, get, get them up at 3.30, make them sit for 12 hours, right? Uh, so it's, uh, you have to uh, treat it relative to the population. I think that You know, to me, the uh, the idea of uh, moderation, though, being the essence of the virtue and that the vices are the extremes uh, can, you know, be a real critique of some of the kind of uh, monastic extremism that people tend to idealize, uh, basically on the heroic model right that uh the person who is uh done you know the most intensive and strictest uh you know practice must be the most realized and i think that that's a big um uh you know trend or you know just even historically or culturally in a lot of this tradition to think that the depth of your insight is always going to be proportional to the intensity of the hardship you put yourself through. And um, unless you're, you know, willing to cut off your arm like the second patriarch and uh, suffer anything, uh, how can you expect to gain real insight? And I think that that um, is something a little crazy about that. And I think that um, in a certain way, uh, people suffer plenty uh, from, their, from their ordinary life. The, the issue is much more, uh, how do you learn from that? How do you practice with that you know, in a useful and an intelligent way? Uh, not how do you double down on more hardship and more pain and learn more endurance as the uh, only way out or through? So, I mean, this, this leads into the, the question I wanted to ask about what, what does a practice that's not um, 
centering, you know, that, that sort of uh, ascetic intensity, um, what does it look like? And, and I mean, it sounds like one thing is to, is to learn how to use the, the difficulties we already have in our life, you know, not mm -hmm. to seek more difficulties. Well, you know, I've, I've said the goal of practice is uh, wholeness, not wholesomeness. Uh, that first of all, Zen is not a purification pro uh, process in which we're trying to get rid of uh, anything. Uh, one of my mottos is the mind is not defiled by its contents. Uh, and so I think that the point of practice is to allow us to stay with all those parts of ourselves that we probably came to practice to try to get rid of, uh, like our uh, anxiety or insecurity or sexuality or anger or all these things. And that one way or another, we have to find a, a seat at the table for all, all these parts of ourselves. And uh, Joko, you know, what I read last night uh, was talking about being okay with all these terrible things happening from the inside. Well, I think the, the real way we practice towards that is to become okay with all the terrible things we find inside, all the things that are the source of, uh, uh, of shame or anxiety or... Uh, self-hate. Uh, that's where we really face pain and difficulty. Uh, you know, it's one thing to say I can sit and endure, you know, pain in my knees all the time, but it's a different thing to, uh, to say, what's it like to just endure embarrassment? You know, and, you know, you talk about uh, part of the monastic training was everybody can see you all the time. You're always part of a community. Uh, you have to, you know, one response to that is to become a perfectionist and learn to master everything and never make a mistake. But I think a deeper lesson is to be able to tolerate being a person who makes mistakes and to see the inevitability of that, and to see the inevitability of uh, flaws and imperfection and needing to be corrected and to be dependent on other people. Uh, there we're facing vulnerability. And I think that there's much more psychological growth, or at least a very different dimension of psychological growth that comes from facing vulnerability than just comes from uh, facing physical hardship and endurance. So that becomes a different model of uh, what it is that uh, we're facing in practice. And I think that um, a psychologically minded Zen grounded in everyday life gets people to face things like uh, shame and embarrassment and anxiety and not just the uh, pain and sleeplessness. Yeah. Does, does wholeness lead to wholesomeness? Uh, probably to some extent in that uh, 
when you don't hate yourself uh, for having various uh, qualities, I think there's a great way in which you ease up on yourself and with others. But uh, I think that we don't want to imagine we're going to try to get to a place where we will never be angry or we'll never uh, be anxious or we'll never have uh, sexual thoughts or we'll never, you know, whatever it is. Uh, those things uh, may ameliorate o over time, but I think they're much less the point. Uh, it, I think the elimination of self-hate and the uh, elimination of projection of the vulnerability we can't stand in ourselves to despised others, I think is a big, big uh, part of what has to happen in practice. Mm -hmm. I have one more question and then maybe we can, you know, take a break and open it up, whatever, whatever we need to do. Okay. Um, and so it's about attachment and suffering and um you know we hear the four noble truths the cause of suffering is attachment to desire is clinging there's an end of end to suffering you know the cessation of cessation of suffering how do you relate to that to that you know formulation and it's that you know and i'm also aware that attachment is is a you know has has different shades of meaning in english and in psychology and maybe it does have in the buddhist mm -hmm. tradition well i would probably say that um, attachment and desire uh, lead to suffering and we just have to take those as a package uh, that that's what it is to be human and that uh, there is a whole range of attachments from uh, the attachment of a mother to a baby to the attachment of an addict to his drug. So there's there's lots of ways to both be healthy and unhealthy in the realm of attachment. And um, I think that what we're trying to learn is, are healthy, mature ways of being dependent and attached, uh, not... Uh, have a fantasy of uh, ending attachment or uh, and being in an, any kind of autonomous state. Um, to some extent, we might have been better off if uh, Buddha stopped with the first noble truth and just said, "Life is suffering," you know, and forget about the part of uh, any end to suffering. I think uh, that just got people uh, off on a wild goose chase. You know? <laughs> Uh, because, um, you know, as Joko's uh, piece last night said, this so-called end of suffering means non-separation from suffering, right? That's the only end of suffering there is. And most people, you know, when they find out that, they think they've been, shit, I've been sold a bill of goods all these years. That's not the kind of end of suffering I had in mind, right? Uh, the you know the way I've put that is that um, problems don't disappear from our life; they disappear into our life, right? That it becomes a seamless part of life. Uh, 
suffering is not something uh, separate from us that is a um, feature we're going to eliminate. It means that we stop splitting our life into the good parts and the bad parts and trying to get rid of the bad parts and think practice is going to leave us with only the good ones. Uh, it means that whole dualism, that whole dichotomy between life and suffering disappears. It's just life. Uh, I think that makes a diff big difference, but not the one we wish for. <laughs>